Good morning. So good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for visiting with us, being a part of our congregation here this morning. I hope something is said or done that makes you want to come back and be a part of what we're doing here. Um, when I was growing up, I watched a television program quite often that featured characters like Elmo, Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, Bert and Ernie. You know what the show is. You probably watched it yourself. Somebody said it, Sesame Street. Thank you, Charles. My iPad was going nuts before I came up here. So, just in case. Sesame Street, right? You know, Sesame Street was a children's program that featured puppets or Muppets, as the creator Jim Henson referred to them. For 13 years, this educational program featured the first human character named Mr. Hooper. Mr. Hooper was on the show for 13 years until he died of a heart attack in 1982. And the producers were faced with a dilemma. How do you explain death to the 10 million children that watched the program? And a lot of ideas were floated around, one being that Mr. Hooper went to Florida and retired. But ultimately, they decided to tell the truth. And so the day of the big show arrived and Big Bird walks out and he says, I can't wait to see Mr. Hooper. I've got a drawing for him. And that's when a cast member says, but Big Bird, we told you, Mr. Hooper has died. He's not coming back. And Big Bird says, oh yeah, I forgot. Well, I'll just give it to him when I see him again. And one cast member wrapped their arms around Big Bird and said, Big Bird, he's not coming back. And Big Bird asked innocently, why? And the cast member says, because, Mr. Big Bird, when, when people die, they don't come back again. The gospel of Sesame Street is wrong. It's not even close to scriptural truth. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you will be also. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as indeed those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight, and they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It all comes down to this. It all comes down to this. Your team is down by two in the fourth quarter. 
with three seconds to play. And so the coach sends out the kicking unit. They line up. The referee blows the whistle. The ball is snapped. The kicker kicks it. It's up. It's good. It all comes down to this. You've been carrying this ring around for quite some time. You've got a plan in place. You've picked the spot, the songs, the restaurant, the flowers. The setting is set. And you get down on one knee and you look her in the eyes and you ask if you will marry me. And now the ball is in her court. It all comes down to this. You've been to the doctor several times trying to figure out what's wrong with you. He's run many tests, can't quite put his finger on it, and now you're back in the doctor's office because he wants to deliver the news to you in person. It all comes down to this. That phrase points to a defining moment. It is a pivotal moment, an anticipatory occasion, a paramount episode in life. One that could possibly shift the course of your existence. It all comes down to this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already removed from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple left and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooped to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. However, he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and he looked at the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb also entered then and he saw and believed For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. It all comes down to this. The foundation of the Christian faith is a person, but it's also an event, an extraordinary event with profound implications. The resurrection is the single greatest event in the history of the world. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Paul claims that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of our faith. It only means everything. Other than that, it's not all that important. In fact, if Jesus were not raised from the dead, there's no reason for you to be here filling a pew this morning. There's no reason for you to live morally. There's no reason for you to pray. There's no reason for you to study Scripture. There's no reason for you to evangelize. If the tomb is not empty, then your faith, your life, and your hope is. Many of you probably remember the name Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini was a great escape artist. He was said to have the flexibility of an eel and the lives of a cat. And he said he could escape from anything. And that was put to the test. Over his lifetime, he was sealed in a beer barrel. He was locked in a coffin, locked in a maximum security prison, sewn up in a canvas bag, and time after time, he was able to escape. Until, at the age of 52, he was on his deathbed. And he told his wife, if there is any escaping death, I'll do it. And I'll come back and make contact with you. And so for 10 years... His widow left a light on over a portrait in their home. And after 10 years, she turned it off. Seems as though death was the one thing that Harry Houdini could not escape from. Not so with Jesus. There was no breath, no heartbeat. There was a grave, there were grave, grave clothes, there was a stone sealing the entrance, there were men standing guard, but none of it could keep Jesus from escaping. You know what all this means? It means that there's good news from the graveyard. It means that there's good news from every hospital, every nursing home, every funeral home. There's good news in every funeral procession you see, and the good news is proclaimed by Mary Magdalene in verse 18. Look at it again. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She is saying, I have seen a dead man. I saw him walking and I saw him talking. Now understand, neither Mary Magdalene nor Mary or any of the other disciples assumed resurrection, okay? That wasn't the assumption. When they looked into the tomb, they expected to see the lifeless body of Jesus. Notice verse 2 again. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. Skip down to verses 14 and 15. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. No one assumed resurrection. The assumption was that Jesus' body was stolen. Mary is crying because she thought that someone had stole the body of Jesus. She thinks Jesus is a gardener when he speaks to her, and thinks that maybe he placed the body somewhere. Then verse 19. Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were together due to the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. The disciples were all holed up together, hiding from the Jews. They weren't thinking resurrection. They were scared. They were confused. They were shocked. They shouldn't have been. I mean, Jesus told them that this is the way it would play out. Look at Luke 24, verse 44, now when he had said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In essence, Jesus says, you shouldn't be surprised. I told you how this was all going to play out. In verse 38 of Luke 24, he says to them, why are you frightened? Well, they were frightened because they hadn't connected all the dots. It seemed like every time Jesus spoke about his death, burial, and resurrection, they changed the subject, or they became confused, or they didn't comprehend. But this is a really profound point that I think speaks to the entire credibility of the Bible. The reason why we can put our faith and trust in the Bible being the inspired Word of God is because it includes the failures. It includes the skepticism. It includes the confusion. If you're writing a hero's tale, you wouldn't include all those things. But the Bible includes these embarrassing moments, these less than illustrious episodes. Their doubt and disbelief are front and center. However, so is their faith. Peter saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person he had ever seen or met, and he still believed. Look at verses 46 through 48 of Luke 24. And he said to them, So it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus says, you have witnessed the single greatest event in the history of the world. And not only is it a world-changing event, it's also a life-altering event. Because we see a very different group of people post-resurrection than we do pre-resurrection. Pre-resurrection... The apostles are running and hiding themselves. Post-resurrection, they're running and heralding. They're running and proclaiming the good news. The pre-resurrection disciples were timid and terrified, but the post-resurrection disciples are confident and courageous. What was the difference? An empty tomb? Yeah. But an empty tomb means nothing without a resurrected body. You know, the Bible is filled with questions. I'm sure you've noticed that. I've never counted myself, but somebody says that there are 3,294 questions in Scripture. Jesus was quite fond of questions. And in John chapter 20, he asked a couple of questions that I think are just as relevant today as they were back then. And the first one is this, why are you crying? Now, the answer to that question is pretty simple. Mary was crying because she thought someone had stolen the body of Jesus. But why are you crying? Why are you crying? Maybe you're crying because this is the first Easter that you have spent without your loved one. Maybe you're crying because it's the only way you know how to deal with the devastating diagnosis. Maybe you're crying because your fairy tale marriage turned out to be a nightmare. Maybe you're crying because your life has been one bad decision after another, and you just don't see any way of overcoming it. Maybe you've just decided that it's just not worth it anymore. No one is immune to tears, and none of us have the magic pill that can take all the pain away. But here's what each and every one of us does have, hope. And may we never forget that. I love Psalm 30. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and praise the mention of his holiness. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the, in the morning. Remember when the, the disciples were out on the sea and there was a, a storm that came up that threatened to break the boat apart and throw them overboard? Where was Jesus? 
He was asleep. And so the disciples run and they implore him to wake up and to do something. And, and Jesus says, why are you afraid? Well, again, the answer is pretty simple, right? They were afraid because they thought their life was in danger. But they shouldn't have been because he was in the boat with them. Why are you crying? I think Jesus would ask that question of you today. Not to diminish your sorrow. I don't think he would be asking it condescendingly, but why are you crying? Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, even though he was going to raise him from the dead. He understands your sorrow. He understands your pain. You serve a Savior that can identify with your pain and your sorrow. Why are you crying? He's reminding Mary and thus us that the story doesn't end in tears. It ends in triumph. Mary had lost hope and Jesus says, Mary, your hope's not dead. It's not dead. The tomb of Jesus is not empty. You heard me right. The tomb of Jesus is not empty. It's filled with hope. It's filled with hope that this life does not have its way with us, that this life is going somewhere. It's filled with hope that this isn't all that there is, that the story is still being written. God will make all things new. It's filled with hope because goodness is stronger than evil. It's filled with hope because sin and death do not win. They do not have the last word. You may be crying, but take heart. God will wipe away all tears. And Jesus asked another question. Whom are you seeking or Who are you searching for? And she, of course, was searching for the body of Jesus because she thought it had been stolen, right? How much did Mary weigh? We couldn't have asked her that. That's that's an inappropriate question, right? You ever thought about it? You ever thought about how much Mary weighed? Let's, Let's say that she wasn't portly or stocky. Let's say she weighed 110 pounds. That would probably be more true to character in that day. Why does that matter? Well, apparently she was going to haul Jesus back to the tomb. She was asking where he was at, asking Jesus himself, who she thought was a gardener, where is he given to me, and I'll throw him over my shoulder, I'll drag him, I'll put him in a wheelbarrow, I don't know what she was going to do. How much did Jesus weigh? I, I don't know, but let's say he was an average guy, 165 pounds. The Bible tells us that he had 75 pounds of extra spices and things for burial wrapped up on top of that 165 pounds. So Mary was going to haul a 250-pound corpse back to the tomb. That's love. Her hope was shattered. Her faith was damaged, but her love wasn't lacking. Whom are you seeking? I think it's still a relevant question. Everyone is looking for something or someone. They're searching for purpose, for meaning. I mentioned it a moment ago that the Bible is filled with questions. Let me ask you this. What would you say is the most important question found in Scripture? If you had to narrow it down to one, what's the most important question found in Scripture? Can I give you my opinion? I think it's in Mark chapter 8. Verse 27 and following, it says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the the prophets. And he continued questioning them. And here's what I think. Most important question. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who do you say Jesus is? Whom are you seeking? Who is it that you're searching for? Who do you say Jesus is? A good teacher? 
a prophet, a rabbi, a historical figure, a civil rights leader. I mean, certainly we could peg him with all of those things, but he was so much more than that, right? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you say that he is the Messiah? Do you believe that he is the only hope for mankind? And do you believe that he is your only hope? Do you believe that? Who do you say that he is? And that brings me to a final question. One that Jesus didn't ask, but I'm going to ask because I think it's vitally important. And it's this. Will you fall down? Will you bow down? I want you to notice Mary's reaction when she finally realizes that who she thought was a gardener was actually Jesus. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Stop clinging to me. Could Jesus say that to you? Not that he would. But could you ever be accused of clinging to Jesus? Could you ever be accused of being too clingy? I mean, that's a relationship no-no, right? I mean, maybe, maybe you've had a relationship like that. You're like, eh, you're like a cat. Get off me. Why are you always around? You know, we may not like that as human beings. We may not like someone smothering us. But in discipleship, it's absolutely necessary. Are you clinging to Jesus? Could you be labeled a clingy Christian? Are you smothering? Are you someone who is needy? Relationship no-nos but certainly not no-nos when it comes to discipleship. Who are you bowing down to? Are you searching? Are you hanging on for dear life? Are you clingy? Because you should be. Why are you crying? Understand there's hope. The greatest thing about this life is that it's going somewhere. That when you die in Christ... The last words in your book of life do not read the end. They read to be continued for all eternity. Whom are you seeking? Who is it you're searching for? If you're only interested in having a Jesus that gets involved when you need him, but otherwise stays at arm's length, that's not the right relationship, and that's not the person who died for you. The person who died for you wants to either be Lord of all or not Lord at all. That's the only two options. And will you fall down? Will you cling to this one who wants to be the Lord of your life? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Jesus, but it's the story of Jesus, obviously. follows his his timeline, and there were some missionaries in Bangladesh that were showing the movie Jesus to some citizens there that were interested in learning about the Messiah. And they were following along. They were riveted. They were locked in. And they were focused on the story of Jesus as it played out on the big screen. But when it came to the trial and the crucifixion, as he was being flogged and beaten and nailed to the cross, people in the crowd were crying. They were weeping. And they were angry. There were jeers as they stood up and and were shouting at the movie screen. And one citizen stood up and he said, whoa, 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 
It's okay. Don't be afraid. He comes back. I've seen this before. My friends, that's the story. That's the gospel. He comes back again. Sesame Street had it all wrong. He comes back. People do come back after they die. Jesus proved it. The tomb is not empty. It's filled with hope. And because it's filled with hope, we can sing. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He You know, this week every year gives me a lot of anxiety. Anytime I'm prepping to preach, I'm excited, I'm nervous, all those kind of things. But this week more than any because I know that there will be some people in the audience that I haven't seen before and that honestly I might not see again, at least for a while. And so what do you preach when you only have one shot? When you've only got one bullet in the chamber... You better hit your target, right? If you're here this morning for the first time, first of all, I'm glad you noticed the walls didn't cave in, the roof didn't fall. You are welcome here. And rather than making you feel guilty about not being here before, I want to thank you for, for being a part of what we're doing here this morning. I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that this is where God wants you. But more than that, He wants you in Christ. First and foremost, being a part of this family is a glorious benefit, and it starts with being a disciple. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I mean, I know you're here, but I don't know where you're at in your daily walk with God. Maybe you've not even started a daily walk with God, and, and you want to learn what it means to be a disciple, and so we'd love to study the Bible with you. Maybe you've made that decision long ago, and you veered off track, and you're no longer walking with, with Him, walking in the light. And so maybe you need prayers for this church family to to help you come back. Or maybe you've been studying, maybe you've been thinking about it, maybe you've been asking questions and, and you think, I'm ready to take the next step. We want to help you with that as well. More than anything, we want you to not leave here this morning without hope. You have hope. As long as you can draw breath in your lungs, you have hope. The empty tomb proves that. So, let us help you this morning. Don's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?